The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. This is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The spell you're under has been broken by Chris Jericho. The People's Podcast has arrived. The remedy for boredom is here. Let's go for a ride with the modern-day Indiana Jones. Josh Gates is with me, and he's super, super interesting because he and his team have traveled all over the world to investigate some of history's most iconic legends, age-old mysteries, ancient civilization, lost treasure, paranormal, cryptozoological sites and stories. So many things, Josh has seen if you've seen it in an indiana jones movie chances are josh has experienced it and gone through it and i want to know more i also want to say thanks to all of the sponsors of tij the ones who let me do this for you for free for twice a week and thanks to all of you for supporting my great sponsors including amazon you know how to do it you go to podcastone.com click on the keep our podcast free banner at the top of the page then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Every time you use one of my Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a couple bucks to the show to help us cover production costs. I got links for Amazon USA, Amazon UK, Amazon Canada. A, you can get all kinds of cool stuff on Amazon. You get the latest Black Veil Brides record, Black Veil Brides 4, featuring Andy Beersack of uh, Talk is Jericho alumni fame. Plus, you get Shawn Michaels' new book, Wrestling for My Life, The Legend, The Reality, and The Faith of a WWE Superstar. You got to check that out. Plus, you can get Josh Gates' book, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. So many cool stories. And I was watching Destination Truth uh, over the last few weeks with Ash, the fish expert, and he uh, loves the show. A lot of really uh, unexplained mysteries on there, and I'm very uh, excited to check out Expedition Unknown, Josh's new show, which is on the Travel Channel. Uh, You can also check out Fozzie's latest record, Do You Want to Start a War, which is on Amazon, and we were getting ready to hit uh, Europe for the 
Cinderblock Party Tour, which begins. It begins. It's ready to rock, ready to go. I can't believe it's here already. Uh, we'll list all those dates coming up, but you want to start a war, still riding high uh, and running free. Plus, my third book, my third New York Times bestseller, the best in the world at what? I have no idea. You can get that at Amazon as well, but you know the rules. You, you get anything you want uh, at Amazon. Won't cost you anything extra. No hidden frees or challenges. Happen to be doing some online shopping. I want you to do it through my Amazon links. Uh, go uh, help out this show. You go to podcastone.com. You click on the Keep Our Podcast free banner at the top of the page. You hit the Talk is Jericho button, and you can bookmark that right now so you can get to those links in one easy click. Well, it's hard to believe that the Y2J Winter Tour with the WWE has ended uh, in Buffalo on, on, on Sunday night. It was a great, great uh, time. I can't believe it went by so fast. And I have to honestly say that I think these last two months have been uh, two of my favorite months that I've ever had in the business. No stress because a lot of times when you do TVs or pay-per-views, I'm not going to say there's a lot of stress where like you're mad or angry or anything like that, but there's just a lot of things you have to look into. There's a lot of corners that have to be, uh, you know, corners that have to be cut. Is that a saying? <laughs> you got to cross the T's and dot the I's and you have to have kind of no uh, stone can be left unturned. And not that you don't do that on a, on a live event as well, but it's a different vibe and it's a lot more of a fun thing. You just take your time, take your, uh, take your chances and do what you want to do and really just feel the crowd a lot more. And anybody that goes to live events and the TV tapings will tell you the pros and cons to both. Obviously, TV tapings have more of the pomp and circumstance and all the big angles happen on TV. But at the live events, there is less pressure and just more freewheeling. You, you want to say something to the crowd? Say it. You want to try a new move or a new high spot? Do it. So all that stuff kind of uh, comes into play when, when you're on um, on the live event schedule. And I had uh, a really, really great time working just two guys. I did 16 shows and I either worked with Cesaro or I worked with Luke Harper. And uh, they're both great, great performers. And they're both very much coming into their own. Uh, you know, uh, there's pros and cons to every performer, but I think that Cesaro and Harper both have it uh, worked out. Cesaro maybe needs a little bit more of a of a spark character wise and it's not from lack of trying he's always trying different things working on different things and I actually think this new tag team that he's in with um, Tyson Kidd is going to help him to kind of find a little bit more because whenever you're in the mix you always get more confidence I mean when you, when you're not in the mix and you're kind of just spinning your wheels it's frustrating and and you know it's hard to get your ideas on TV if you have no idea uh, if you have no TV time. So now that Cesaro's on TV with Kid, that will be a chance for him to get out there and do some things and, and kind of show some different personalities and show some different ideas because he's got the TV time to be able to do that in. A perfect example of this is, is Curtis Axel. I mean, how awesome is Axel Mania? I'm a huge Axel Mania fan. I'm a big fan of, of, of Curtis Axel as well. But I love the fact that it was just kind of a throwaway thing. You know, he never got, he never got eliminated from the Royal Rumble. So now after 35, 36, 37 days, he's uh, still in, quote-unquote, the Royal Rumble. And so he started Axelmania to talk about how he's going to wrestle, WrestleMania. And, you know, Vince loves stuff like that, and the fans love stuff like that. Now they're chanting for, for Curtis Axel and chanting for Axelmania. And you would never, ever have guessed that 
And that's that's so one of my favorite things about pro wrestling is how there's just um you just never know what's going to work and what's not going to work and and the fact that you know Curtis Axel is now one of the, the the getting the biggest pops on raw it's it's just it's a, a great testament to see if you have some creativity and how things can go for you so uh thumbs up to Axel who I did not work on this last tour but, but thumbs up to Cesaro and to Harper both of them are great um, finished up the tour this weekend in Buffalo and Toronto but of course the crown jewel of any tour is Madison Square Garden and uh, I mean I think a lot of times people kind of take that for granted and I never do whenever I go into the garden it is a big deal and I'm not sure if some of the guys that are coming into the business now understand just how monumental it is to, to be in the garden and it's more than just an arena you know I, I would work in the garden for free uh, really, just just to get a chance to to wrestle in there, and, and as a matter of fact, at one point it was just pitched that I would just do a highlight reel in the garden. I was like, nope, I'm doing a match. Put me in there with somebody. Had a great match with Harper, and um, just the atmosphere and the feeling. If you walk around backstage at the garden, there's all the you know the pictures up on the wall of all the greats that have performed there, and you see that quite often in, in newer arenas now. But I remember the garden has had this for gosh since I've been going there. I think my first time was in '99. And, you know, all the new arenas have pictures up there, but there's not a lot of arenas that have a picture of John Lennon playing, George Harrison playing, Paul McCartney playing, all solo gigs. You know, Tito Fuentes is up there, ACDC, Springsteen, Billy Joel, Elton John. You know, it, it, it's the mecca. If you've ever been in a band that's amounted to anything, you have done well at Madison Square Garden. And, I've heard that, you know, there's a lot of times when you don't make money if you go to the garden because of union fees and setup fees. And, you know, there's a very strict curfew. If you go over that, you got to pay overages and that sort of thing. And it doesn't matter. You do the garden because if you're going to have a presence in New York City, you play Madison Square Garden. That's just how it goes. End of story. Done deal. They've done some great uh, renovations to the garden over the years. So it's it was kind of getting to be one of those older places that you just put up with because it was the garden. But now, I mean, the Tron is huge. It's amazing. The dressing rooms are great. And the sound system is incredible in the garden, as it should be. But the real big selling point, we did a huge house there. It was like an $855,000 house, which is amazing. You know, that's that's the biggest of the big as far as live events goes. And for a while, actually, uh, Cena and I had the record for the highest grossing WWE garden show of all time. I believe that was in December of 2008. We had a cage match that Howard Finkel said was the greatest cage match he'd ever seen, which was pretty cool because... Howard's seen, you know, I'm sure dozens of cage matches. But that crowd, that house, that gate was the biggest gate we'd ever had in Madison Square Garden up until that point. And maybe even for a pay-per-view as well, because I think pay-per-views and TV tapings, there's less seats available. So, although they can probably charge more. But I think for a live event, for sure, it was the highest grossing garden show of all time. But the big centerpiece of this show was the Hulk Hogan Appreciation Night. Now, all of us listening to Talk is Jericho love Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, of course, being a Talk is Jericho alumni. He's been on the show uh, twice. He did We did two episodes with Hulk back just a few months ago. Both of them have done huge ratings, by the way. And if you haven't heard them, you got to go check them out. 
But Hogan is, you know, is the epitome of of the WWE in Madison Square Garden. Besides Bruno Sammartino, don't get on my case and start tweeting me about uh, no Bruno Sammartino main evented more. I get that, but if you're a guy my age or a little younger, a little older, I mean Bruno's in his seventies. I'm in my forties. So for me, Hulk Hogan is the, the WWE in the eighties and is uh, WWE in Madison Square Garden. I mean, you talk about WrestleMania one and. You know, just all the times when you would see Hogan in, in, in MSG. So they had the Hulk Hogan Appreciation Night, which was really cool. It started out with Jimmy Hart going to the ring and kind of announcing Hulk. Hulk came down and, and said a little speech and then was interrupted by the NWO, who he did know was there, Hall and Nash. And then Hall and Nash played, I think, a, a highlight package of you know all the great stuff that Hogan has done. And then Flair came down, which uh, nobody in the crowd knew Flair was going to be there. They knew that Hall and Nash were going to be there, but they didn't know that Flair was going to be there. So it was a big, big explosion when he came out to the ring, which was really cool. And Flair said some really nice stuff about Hogan, and uh, it was a real love fest. And showed some more packages. And this is like kind of goosebump type stuff because you're not going to see this again. It's like one of those really cool once-in-a-lifetime things. And then they bring down the, 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 the operator of Madison Square Garden and one of the most famous photographers in Madison Square Garden history who took a famous picture when Hogan won the title from the Iron Sheik back in 84. And, of course, the Garden, New York City Garden crowd boos them like idiots, you know, typical New York City. I love New York City. You guys are great, great fans, but sometimes you can be real dummies. Like, why are you booing, like, one of the greatest sports photographers of all time? Like, why? Like, what's the point? Anyways, they give Hulk, Hulk a big, you know, giant life-size print of this great picture that, that the guy took. I think his name is George. Um, sports historians will know exactly what his name is. And uh, then um, Triple H came down and, and said a few more things. And then they raised this banner up to the ceiling. It said 30 years of Hulkamania. And I was so excited. Like, it's like, here you go. You got all the, you know, the, the numbers that have been retired over the years. You know, Rod Gilbert and Brad Park and Mark Messe and, you know, all those guys. And then you got uh, all the banners from the New York Rangers over the years from the Knicks you know, all that sort of thing. They got a banner of Billy Joel in one corner for like 60 sellouts, Elton John, 60 sellouts, and then they raised the banner for Hulkamania, which was really, in reality, one of the coolest things I'd seen. I had a total uh, goosebumps and all that and all that. But then I just found out today that they took the banner down. Like, why wouldn't they leave that up there? Like, I thought that was a really cool thing. It's like 30 years of Hulkamania in the garden, Hulk Hogan's banner risen to the sky, but they took it down, and that was kind of a real, like, uh, it kind of pissed me off. Like, Hogan should still have that um, banner raised up in the sky, and it should stay there forever. I mean, everybody in New York City knows the WWE. Everyone in New York City knows Hulk Hogan, and I think Hulk's banner should still be up there. I don't know why they took it down, but whatever. At that point in time, for that night, raising that banner, and just the whole night as a whole, whether they, whether they keep the banner, whether they let them take the banner down, it was a very cool night that you'll never ever forget, and it was a great way for me to end off the Y2J Winter Tour, and I hope to see you guys very, very soon. It's funny because I got a, a little t-shirt store up at ProWrestlingTees.com and that's ProWrestlingTees T-E-E-S dot com and I love the fact that people are like, well, sh we're seeing this pro wrestling tease. Does that mean you're never coming back to the WWE again? And it's like, it doesn't mean anything of the sort. I actually created that because I wanted to have 
some Talk is Jericho merchandise. We got four shirts up. There's a, a Master of Podcasts shirt, which is great, based on Master of Puppets. There's a Pot of Thunder shirt. And then there's an Armbar shirt and a Jericho Personal Security Ralphus shirt. And I put those two on there because I've seen people with bootleg versions of those, selling bootleg versions of those for years. So uh, I'm stealing them back, guys. Sorry. Those are now official Jericho shirts. There's the Armbar shirt. Jericho Personal Security, Talk is Jericho Master of Podcasts, Talk is Jericho Pod of Thunder. If you like those ideas, they're like 20 bucks each. Go to ProWrestlingTees.com slash Chris Jericho and find them all there. If you want to buy them, great. If you don't, I don't care. I just wanted to put them up there so you guys would have the choice to, to get some cool-looking uh, swag from TIJ if you wanted them because this is the best podcast in the world with over 63 million downloads so far yeah thanks to you guys a lot of diversity a lot of cool people on here josh gates the modern day indiana jones is coming up from travel channels destination truth and expedition unknown a lot of cool amazing fantastic stories the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal it probably won't go well so set a limit when you gamble and stick to it want more helpful tips like this go to keepitfunohio.com for games quizzes and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand This is Talk is Jericho. On the line right now uh, is, is is Josh Gates, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not jealous of a lot of people in my life. Uh, I've gotten to do pretty much everything I ever wanted to do, but you have uh, a dream job, my man. You are the host of Expedition Unknown. You were the host of Destination Truth, and basically your job is you get to travel around the world looking for supernatural mysteries, legends. Uh, dude, can, can I be you for a day, please? <laughs> yes, of course. Anytime you, you you want to switch places, it's fine. Although I will warn you, it's a lot of bad food and uh, cramped airplanes. Well, and that's the thing. I'm sure when you're filming these episodes, we get to see the 60 minutes of the glorious stuff, but it's the other 23 hours that uh, is the real job in all this, right? For sure. I mean, look, I would never uh, complain about it. I I, um, I feel really lucky to be doing this. But, uh, but yeah, it is one of those be careful what you wish for things. Well, I mean, because, you're, you know, you're kind of a modern-day, like, Indiana Jones in a lot of different ways. I mean, what do you call yourself? Uh, I call myself modern-day Indiana Jones. I, <laughs> I, I print that on my business cards, actually. Um, Damn it! No, you know, look, what we, what we do on the show is we, we go around the world, and, uh, and we're investigating iconic legends and mysteries, everything from, you know, lost cities and vanished explorers to buried treasures and... Uh, you know, supernatural relics and artifacts. And and uh, I think really what I'm trying to do is, is to go to these places and investigate these stories to see if there's any truth behind them. So I think I'm, I'm kind of part, you know, part adventure guy, part TV host, and also part uh, storyteller and, and, and producer, I guess, trying to 
to, to really just go to these spots and, and bring our viewers along to experience these stories. And this just basically started its expedition unknown on the Tribal Channel. And it, and what is the difference? Because we'll talk about Destination Truth later because I'm really interested in a lot of those things. What Expedition expedition known, Unknown is not so much focused on the monsters. It's more on uh, artifacts and legends and that sort of a thing. What are the differences between the two shows? Yeah, I mean, Destination Truth, which was, you know, awesome. I take nothing away from that experience. It was great. But it was, it was in kind of a, a specific sandbox, right? It was mm-hmm. the, the stories had to be either paranormal or they had to be cryptozoological, had to right. be a ghost or a monster. And there wasn't really a lot of room for anything else. And uh, and it also had a format that I think was was frustrating for those of us who made the show, which is that we, we kind of had to cram two adventures into each hour. Right. Which, uh, which which worked okay on Ghost Hunters when you were really just focusing on a, a domestic paranormal investigation. But when we were trying to travel halfway around the world and, and fit in some culture, fit in some travel, it just got really tight. And so uh, Expedition Unknown, you know, um, I, th- I think takes some of the core DNA of, of Destination Truth, which is that it's still very much an adventure show. It's still fun and funny and very unexpected. But it, it allows us to do kind of a deeper dive and to explore the cultures a bit more, explore the destinations a bit more, and to focus a full hour on the on the topic at hand. And yeah, these are now legends and, and mysteries. Some of them have a supernatural element to them, but it's not strictly speaking mm-hmm. like we're going on a monster hunt. You know. Well, let's talk about some of the episodes. Uh, I'm assuming that you filmed them all. And, and what an undertaking this must be when, when I said you're a modern-day Indiana Jones. It, it's, you know, we're joking, but basically you guys are, are, are hitching up to do an expedition Everywhere around the world, this is not something that's just happening within the United States. Wait, you were joking when you called me that? Well, not anymore. Was, not not okay. anymore. Now I'm serious. <laughs> I want to be your short uh, round. No, Look out, Doctor. F- <laughs> Look out, Doctor Gates. It, it, it is. A, it is a real undertaking. You know, I mean, these are these, these kind of stories. These legends. They they usually take place in in pretty far flung places. Well, let's talk about. It. I mean, the first episode was was basically about the the mystery of Amelia Earhart. What was the the the, the new news that, that that brought you to this case? I mean, you said you were looking for something that had a little bit of a buzz about it, right? You know, the Earhart story is uh, was really a great place uh, for us to start because it's probably the, the biggest mystery of the 20th century. You know, this was uh, right. Earhart was probably the most famous woman in America when she disappeared, and uh, and her mystery uh, the, or the the mystery surrounding her disappearance really still fixates well, us almost hundred years later. She took off to fly around the world, or what was exactly she was trying to do? That's right. She was trying to be the first woman to circumnavigate the globe, and so this was 1937. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, aviation was still really in its early years, and this was a really difficult thing to attempt. Uh, she had a custom-built uh, plane made by Lockheed, and she had attempted it once before, and, and uh, going uh, the kind of counterclockwise direction, and she, she didn't make it past Hawaii in that attempt because she had a problem with her plane, had to be rebuilt. But she, on her, on her final attempt, she had made it like two-thirds of the way around. She started from Oakland, California, and she took an eastern route, and she went down across South America, hopped the Atlantic, went across Africa, Asia. Hmm. She made it all the way to Papua New Guinea, so just off the coast of, of uh, Asia, right above uh, Australia, actually. She made it there, and then she, she had only a few more stops before uh, making it back to Oakland. She had to go from Papua New Guinea to a very tiny island called Howland Island, and then from there to Honolulu and from Honolulu to Oakland. And she knew that, that, that those last stretches were really the most dangerous part of the trip because there were huge bodies of water uh, with very little infrastructure out there in the Pacific. And so she never made it to Howland Island. She, she took off from uh, Papua New Guinea and never landed. And so, um, you know, nearly 100 years mm. later, we're, we're still 
really fixated on what became of her, what became of her, of her plane. She had a navigator on board as well who gets a little lost to history, but uh, his name is Fred Noonan, and uh, he, he vanished as well. And so mm-hmm. the really crazy thing about the Earhart mystery is that if you ask, like, 10 different Earhart researchers, they'll give you 10 different theories. Right. You know, she, yeah. she, um, she crashed here. She sank there. She was, she was taken prisoner by the Japanese. She was a spy herself. She faked her death. I mean, you hear all these wild theories about her. A lot of legends and, about um, the legend, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's one of those things where because no trace of her ever turned up, it sort of spiraled off into, you know, legends upon legends. Mm-hmm. But uh, but there but there is kind of a new generation now of, of researchers that are out there trying to piece together what really happened to her. And there are some really interesting breaks in this case. There's a there's a group called uh, uh, Tiger and uh, they are uh, the historic aircraft recovery group. They're called and they've been they've been focused on Earhart now for decades Hmm. And uh, they recently announced that they found a piece of aluminum on a remote island in the Pacific that they think uh, could be from her plane. Wow. And so, you know, if, if, if that could be proven, it would be huge because it would be the very first trace of evidence of her in 75 years. So we basically looked at some of the most prominent theories out there about Earhart, including the, the theory that she may have crash-landed on this remote island, and then we go out and do our own investigation across the South Pacific, trying to chase down some of these leads and really see what we can find. So you think she crashed on one of these islands uh, around New Guinea? You know, I don't know. It's, I mean, I think the most, look, the, the simplest, most straightforward answer is, um, is the obvious one, which is that she couldn't find this very small island, mm-hmm. and she ran out of fuel, and she ditched in the ocean, and, and, and she died. And that may be the case. You know, the fact of the matter is a lot of money has been spent searching the waters around where she should have landed, and there's been no trace of the plane. Hmm. That doesn't mean she didn't crash in the ocean. You know, the, the Pacific Ocean is, is vast, and it's deep. So she, she could still be out there for sure. Um, but there is some kind of circumstantial evidence that she may have crash-landed on a, a number of small islands near where she was intending to go. One of them is this little island called Nicomararo, where this uh, where this aluminum panel was found. And the the directors of this organization, they, they really believe that this is what happened. They, they're convinced that she crash-landed on this island. And so it's a fascinating theory, but it's not a done deal. You know, I mean, I think that until we have a plane, until we have... Right. A skeleton, you know, it's um, it's not a done deal. So, where are some of the other places that you've traveled, uh, to, and some of the other mysteries that you're trying to unravel? Sure. Um, the the second episode in the run uh, in, involves a uh, a lost city in Cambodia, and this is such a cool story because this is like right out of you know Indiana Jones. It, it's uh, this is like a a, a jungle covered you know temple <laughs> city out in the out in the wilds of, of of Cambodia. And what's so cool about the story is that. You know, some of these stories are, are definitely real, things like Earhart, where we know that, that it's real, and some of them are um, legends. And in the case of this lost city, it sounds like it's something that's a myth or a legend, you know, but, but it's a real place. And, and archaeologists knew that this place was a real city. They, they had inscriptions that mentioned it at other temples in Cambodia, but they never were able to find it. Hmm. And they even kind of knew that it was on this one mountain, but they didn't know where and they had searched for it for, for decades. And then recently, they, uh, a new technology was invented, this thing called, that I'd never heard of, this, this thing called LIDAR, which is a laser um, scanning technology that you mount to a plane or to a helicopter, and it basically pulses these lasers down into the jungle canopy, and it just, like, sees through the jungle. Hmm. And, um, and using this new technology, these uh, archaeologists found this lost city just last year. So uh, the episode... They actually found it. This place. Yeah, they actually found it. Wow. So, so, um, 
So the episode involves us going to this lost city, taking cameras up into the jungles to investigate a place that, you know, nobody's laid eyes on for a thousand years. And um, and there is this great legend associated with the city that the, that the king of the city, you know, had this mystical artifact that was like uh, charged with the with the powers of the gods, you know, and that he could use this to kind of wield the power of the gods. So there's like this there's like this real Indiana Jones element of like, oh, my God, the city exists. It's real. It's out there. And then there's this whole other level of like, what's with this crazy story about this guy that claims to have this, you know, magical artifact. So when you approach these different expeditions, do you approach them completely from a scientific level? Do you have um, an open mind into believing that some of these things could be true? Uh, what, what is your, your, your attitude and thoughts towards it? I mean, I, you know, I, I think I first and foremost just approach them from a from like a, like an interest level. You mm-hmm. know, it's like when I hear stories like this, my ears just kind of perk up, right? It's like if it's like, you know, something that sounds like it belongs in the Goonies, I'm like, I'm there. I'm in. <laughs> I want to know what's, you know, I want to right. know what's actually going on there. Um, but, it, but in terms of the kind of believability factor, I think, you know, making Destination Truth over at Sci-Fi kind of taught me to be a lot more open-minded about stories because we were looking for some of the craziest stuff in the world on that show. And, you know, going into that job, I, I initially was like, all right, I'm going to go look for ghosts and monsters. Like, that's that could be kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And I bet you most of this stuff is crazy and there's not a shred of truth to it. And I kind of left that, that uh, series feeling like, you know, most of the stories that we investigated, they're – the, the people that we met that thought that they saw a creature in the yeah. woods or something in the lake, they had a real experience. See, that's, the, that's now, the way I look at it, too. If it, you know, whether it's crazy or not, they believe it. So therefore, something mm-hmm. is going on. Totally. And, and, and even if what they saw wasn't Bigfoot or wasn't a lake monster, you know, it's a real mystery, right? The story is real. Mm-hmm. So, um, so to me that was, you know, that's cool. Like what, what's actually going on here? You know, when we talk about things that we're looking for um, on, on Expedition Unknown, you know, we're looking for this, uh, this ancient Viking artifact that in these Viking legends, it was this weird crystal that, you know, was like magical that the Vikings could use to navigate the seas and it, and it would allow them to navigate um, kind of by the power of magic in a weird way. So, you know, you look at that story and you go, okay, there's probably not a magic crystal out there that, that can be used to navigate the world's oceans. But now the question is, was this a real thing? Was this some crystal mm-hmm. with like natural properties that kind of acted like a compass? And, and now there's a school of thought that maybe this thing, which is called the Viking sunstone could have been real. And, and so sometimes like the real world answer to what's actually going on is kind of like just interesting. Well, and the thing, the thing is too, Josh, like, let's say we were, you know, hanging out in 1965 and I said, you know, someday there will be a magical screen where you can, write in an address and it will take you there no matter where it is you'd be like you're crazy this could be kind of like the reverse version of that like maybe there was some kind of a crystal like you said that had some kind of geomagnetic properties or something that could lead you into the right place i mean absolutely and that's i mean you know even not even the 1960s five years ago yeah exactly right half of the the things we have today (laughs) seem like science fiction you know so uh, for sure i think that you know a big part of what we're trying to do is to um 
you know, get out there and just explore these things and see where the stories take us. And I think part of the fun of the show is we don't always know where it's going to lead us. And, that, and, that, and that's what makes it exciting. Let's talk about something in one of the expeditions close to home. I'm, I'm reading some of the, the descriptions here. And first of all, the Cambodia Lost City is actually called the Temple of Doom. Once again, yeah. modern day Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> let's, there's another one talking. Uh, the name of the show is Jesse James. It's in uh, yeah. Oklahoma. And you're searching for the buried gold of Jesse James. Tell us about the legend behind this and, and what, uh, what, what you may or may not have found or, or the uh, process behind it. Yeah, you know, Oklahoma might not on face value sound like the most exotic destination in the world. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but actually, it, it, it is a pretty incredible story. You know, Jesse James is one of these guys that, like, everybody knows the name, right? Everybody knows, oh, yeah, Jesse James, he was like an outlaw, mm-hmm. you know, but, but people don't have a really clear understanding. I, th- I think they do more now because there's been a few films made about him in the last few years. But, you know, James was a real guy, and he lived in a, a really kind of, um, you know, in, in insane moment in history when the country was really being being torn apart right. um, around the Civil War. And, and he um, he was a bad guy. I mean, there's really no, you know, there's no ambiguity. He was an outlaw. James, yeah. yeah, he was a bad dude. I mean, he, he, he killed a lot of folks and killed a lot of folks he probably didn't need to kill. Um, and he and his gang uh, robbed a lot of different places. They robbed banks, they robbed stagecoaches, they robbed people. Um, and they buried a lot of their money. A lot of these guys in that era, you know, there's, there's no safe place to kind of keep your loot. And they would go out into the, the woods and the hills and the mountains and they would draw maps and they would, they would bury treasure. It was a real thing. It was like the safest place to put something. You know, you could right. put it in the, 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 the town bank. Some robber would come along and take that. And so... There is this particular legend about this huge treasure that James and his gang stole from um, from Mexico. That they went down into Mexico and and uh, stole gold bullion that was being transported, and they drove it up into the mountains of Oklahoma and buried it up in the mountains. And it's never been recovered. And so it's one of these cool stories where you know, look, not only could there be millions of dollars of gold bullion out there yet to be discovered, but it could be like right in your own backyard. I mean, this could be here in the United States. So that's what I'm saying. It's it's such a, a fantastic thing. Like you could actually go and you know d- go dig in a hill in Oklahoma, and suddenly you found millions of dollars worth of gold. What kind of clues do you get to take you to the right place uh, that's going to totally. lead you in the right way? That that's the thing. People always say to me like, "Oh, I wish I could do what you do and go have adventures." And I'm like, "Go to Oklahoma. Like there's there's very <laughs> treasure right here. Maybe come you know, on, like, man. You can have the adventure of a lifetime. Like you can get in the car. You know." Right, it's um, all there, and there's yeah, there's there's and, and there's a ton of of uh, that, that's been written about the legend, and there's like these crazy old maps, and and you meet these hilarious like professional treasure hunters that are that are they're all kind of like these kooky guys who who go out there, and this is what they do, this is their life, and they they want to find this stuff, and like you kind of meet them, and you're like, are these guys crazy? And then like an hour into it, you're like, these guys are going to find this, you know, like. And that's the secret to any, you know, quote unquote, I think reality show or adventure show, whether you're talking about, you know, gator hunters or whatever they are, it's not so much what you're doing. It's the people that you meet along the way. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I like about, about these expeditions that you're having, these adventures that you're having, whether it's real or not, you're meeting people who think that it is. And that's, that's half the fun. Totally. And it's also because, you know, you have to find a way to it's really hard now um, to make TV that's not not educational, but that's like even remotely informative. Like it's just tough. You know, we, we, we live in a time where people are very immediate and there's kind of short attention span. So, you know, trying to tell people about 
lost civilizations and ancient <laughs> history and stuff like that. You have to find good characters and you have to find ways to do it kind of in the moment and really make it a real adventure or it's just like folks are going to change the channel, you know? Absolutely. Um, but there's there's plenty of, of, of mysteries and legends out there. Tell me a little bit quickly about the Amber Room uh, that you went looking for in Germany and Russia. This is a really cool story. This is like a trivia question. You know, if you ask people, what's the most valuable object ever to be stolen? You know, mm. most people would probably guess a, a, a diamond or a painting of some kind. But it's actually this thing called the Amber Room, and it was a it was an entire room that was stolen. Uh, it was a, a, a room in this opulent palace in St. Petersburg, in Russia, and it was covered in amber and gold and, and you know precious metals. and And the castle was plundered by the Nazis in World War II, and the Nazis. Uh, took this entire room, broke it down, packed it into crates, and then shipped it out of Russia uh, on trains back into Germany. And hmm. it was never seen again. And so there's this great long-standing debate as to whether or not uh, the Amber Room was destroyed in an, in an Allied attack in Germany or whether it survived and is still hidden out there waiting to be discovered. I mean, that is, you know, that's completely, you know, Indiana Jones 5 right there, you know. Are, are you, are, How cool is that? <laughs> so when you have, like, you're talking about all these different legends and and expeditions that you go to, do you have to go find, like, some kind of a Nazi expert? Or, or who is giving you the information that you need to put together a show that's going to be halfway, you know, interesting and exciting where you're not just kind of trying to knock down walls and find it behind a behind a door or something? Totally. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to meet, you know, scientists, archaeologists, researchers that are kind of on the cutting edge of these stories, people that are out there close to finding out the next step, the next clue, or, or, or to solving these things altogether. So we're looking for, you know, who are the people out there that are trying to recover this stuff? In the case of, you know, Jesse James, you're talking about treasure hunters, and, and, that, and that can be kind of an eclectic community of people. But you're trying to say, okay, who are the best treasure hunters out there looking at this? And also historians and, and, and other people who can help, you know, offer some context to the story. Do you ever meet any kind of resistance? Like, you know, if I'm a treasure hunter and I see all these city slickers coming to town, um, you know, trying to investigate and trying to dig up my stuff, I don't want you around. I'm going to lead you to the other side of the, the other side of the desert. <laughs> Sometimes we had a we had one of the one of the uh, treasure hunter guys in the Jesse James episode had this map. But like he didn't want to show it, you know. Right. And uh, and then and then I sort of struck a deal with him where I said, well, what if you just show it to me, but we don't put it on TV? I yeah. can just look at it. And he was like, okay. He, you know, he was like, I could kind of get my head around that. And and then I looked at it, and it was like gibberish. It was just like <laughs> it's like, lines and X's. It's like it's, it's like, dude, nobody's going to interpret your map. There was an X under map. a palm tree. <laughs> yeah, I was like, don't worry, you're okay. Nobody's going to go find the gold with this thing. Um, and uh, and then you know sometimes like we in the in the Earhart story, we had a guy who who was convinced that he knew where uh, Earhart's plane was, but, you know, he wanted me to fly all the way to, like, the Solomon Islands in the Pacific, but he wouldn't tell me anything. You know, he, he wouldn't tell me any coordinates or, 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 you know, give me any proof that he'd found something. So, you know, usually that's a sign that you're dealing with someone who's a little out there. <laughs> yeah. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
on the line right now uh, is, is, is Josh Gates. Um, let's talk a little bit about your previous show, uh, Destination Truth, which you sure. did for, for five, diff- five seasons. And it was actually even called Monster Hunter uh, overseas. Right. Uh, you know, anytime you're doing a show that can last one, two seasons, five seasons, especially about something as eclectic as, uh, as the supernatural and monsters and cryptozoology, I mean, that must have been uh, very eye-opening for you as well to know that there's that many legends out there. Oh, it was amazing. I think when we, when we started Destination Truth, my, my first instinct in that first season was like, are we going to be able to even get a second season out of this? Right. How many monsters are, are, are out there to look for? And it turns out there's, there's so many of these stories about people having weird encounters with you know, things they can't explain, both, both biological creatures and, and paranormal phenomena. It's like a pretty endless well of stories. And once you get into the ghost world, it's really endless. You know, there's just so many people have stories about what they think are paranormal encounters. Well, I, I've been pitching for a while, um, not so much lately, a, about a lake monster show. And the reason why is I've always had an affinity for it, always had an interest in it. And if you go and look up lake monsters, you can find like hundreds, even I think even a thousand, totally. one of the cryptozoologists I've had on the show, about all the different uh, you know, legends about that. Tell us a little bit about some of them that you, that you looked for uh, on Destination Truth. I'll read a couple of really? them to you. I know there was one called the Naga uh, in the Mekong yeah, River. That was in Thailand, right? There's a sort of a, a serpent-like creature there. We looked for something called the Ogopogo in Canada. I know that uh, one for sure. Looked, yeah, we looked for um, a kind of a, a lake monster in Sweden, uh, out in the ocean of Sweden, uh, one, one in Cyprus. Uh, and, you know, it's like they're, they, they come in a few different varieties. You know, some, some people describe seeing kind of giant serpents in the water. Some people describe something that looks more like a, like a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and you're right, there's, there's no shortage to those kind of stories. And I have to say, on, on Destination Truth, those were always the creepiest investigations for me, because I almost always believed that they saw something, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was like, all right, this might, be, this might not be a, a lake monster, but it might be a crocodile. It might be a, you know, a huge snake. Sure, uh, a giant so, tadpole, whatever. I don't want to be swimming with it. Yeah, anything. Like, and, and, and it was always, you know, all those lake monsters stories. It's like, you, you never dive in and the water's like crystal clear. It's always like murky, dark, <laughs> right. spooky water, you know. Was there any stories that you heard that you were told, you know, I'm sure through interpreters for some of them that, that were really creepy from, yeah, from that mean, era? You know, I think for me, the, the, the really creepy lake monster stories were always where, um, you know, you, you would meet these eyewitnesses that were like really rational, normal people who were not like profiteering off of it. They weren't trying to get rich off of it. They were trying to write a book about it. They were just like shaken up by something. And mm-hmm. there would be instances where remember in that um I think it was in the in the Canada one, we met we met this woman who she was like part of a group of like twenty people that saw this thing. They were all together on the shore. It wasn't just like, yeah, she said she saw it. It was like a whole bunch of people saw it, you know? And mm-hmm. And and it and it had movement and it wasn't you know they would say oh it's a log and it's at the surface and this and that and their descriptions were really kind of vivid and and uh, and active and and you sit there and you listen to this and you go well, they saw something I mean it's like twenty people didn't didn't get together and decide to make this thing up right you know um, so that's what t- to me was so cool about that show is that it's like now I'm kind of like all right what's going on here you mm-hmm. know like what's really going on here. 
When I was a kid, um, my grandparents grew up, uh, my grandparents were living in Kelowna, which is right on the banks of Lake Okanagan, which is, you know, yeah, is where the Ogopogo right. is. And I used yeah. to go fishing with my grandfather and he knew that I was scared of the Ogopogo. So he would yeah. uh, take bologna and say, this is Ogopogo's favorite delicacy. And he'd throw it in the lake and he'd go, Ogopogo, have some bologna. And I remember being on the bottom of the boat, just screaming like, Grandpa, stop, stop. I was convinced that Ogopogo would rise from the depths, eat my grandfather and then flip over the boat and then, and then drag me down to the depths. So that's how and, – And eat the bologna. And eat the bologna, exactly, is the extra exclamation point on it. So I will not go in Lake Okanagan, man. So there's no Ogopogo stories for me in the future. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't blame you. That is like such a classic grandfather move. I know, right? Torment. Torment a young boy. What were some of the other, uh, other uh, creatures that you were looking for that, that you found some interesting stuff about? I always loved the Yeti story. You know, the the the, the Yeti is like the Himalayan version of the, yes. the Bigfoot story, and uh, and I always that was always like my 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 favorite of all the monster stories. And it was just because I, I don't know, it's just something about the idea of this like this lone creature living up at high altitude in the Himalayas is sort of you know the abominable snowman. I just always thought that was such a cool story. And going to the Himalayas, we we investigated for it in in a few different countries. We looked for it in in, in Nepal and up in uh, Bhutan, which is a really remote spot up in the Himalayas. And, and what's really cool about the Yeti stories is that you can travel to different countries up there that are that are geographically disconnected, that have different cultures, different peoples, and yet they all kind of have this very similar story about this thing that they've seen. And um, they have a real reverence for it. They have a real respect for it and, and in some ways a fear of it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah, and that's, like you said, that that's uh, become so big now like there's yetis there's sasquatches bigfoot we've had a couple bigfoot experts sasquatch experts and and to me it's like you know it's the same thing with lake monsters or or anything where you're talking about an expansive area whether it be you know snow-covered mountains or whether it's forests of trees or whether it's a giant ocean are we really so egotistical as to think we know every single thing that is in that area even though we've never even explored half of that that uh that, that that place for sure. I mean, we, we, we just went on Expedition Unknown. Uh, one of our, uh, our our first episode, the Earhart episode, took us to Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. which is um, the last place that, that she took off from, as I was saying earlier. But right. it also is one of the wildest nations on Earth. This is a place where they're finding not just like, oh, one new species this year. They're finding dozens of new species every year in the jungles and in the waters around Papua New Guinea. So mm. there's still a lot out there to be discovered. In the world's oceans, there's no question. There's a ton of stuff still to be discovered. Have you ever had any close encounters or any uh, uh, paranormal experiences or even brushes with death doing uh, all these adventures that you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, I sort of knock on wood over here. We've been very lucky over the years. I think in, in terms of wildlife, we've... Um, We've had a couple of close encounters with with snakes, I think, more than anything. You know, I mean, one of the one of the things about the big predators when you go out in the jungle at night is that for the most part they're really skittish. You know, it's really yeah. rare to run into a tiger or something like that. You know, we we would be in tiger, uh, in, you know, jungles that had tigers, and then we would talk to local guides and stuff, and they would say, you know, we've never even seen a tiger here. It's like they're just those 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 animals tend to be very reclusive. But snakes and, and things like that, which are small, can be aggressive and are often out at night and kind of underfoot, can be real, you know, game over kind of encounters. And, uh, you know, I remember we did one episode in, in Indonesia where there was a pit viper in a tree at eye level that we almost just walked into, you know, because they camouflage so well. And uh, stuff like that is terrifying. Well, know, that's the thing. Just... You're out there looking for, you know, a Bigfoot and, you know, you could actually get bitten by a real life, you know, monster. That, that's probably something you don't totally. really expect. 
No, not at all. But it's something that you have to be really careful about because that that kind of stuff is is out there and it's real hard to see. And so I mean, think for for us, snakes in particular were, were always one of the big fears of of making that show. You know, and we ran into um, cobras and and uh, fertilances and other stuff over the years, and they're just um, they're they're dangerous dangerous things. <laughs> Absolutely, in, yeah. In, yeah, in terms of paranormal encounters, you know, I I really started a destination truth as as a, not a, not a hardened skeptic, but I always said an open minded skeptic. Mm-hmm. But I always heard like so many of the ghost guys, like you know Jay and Grant from Ghost Hunters, talk about you know you're going to get punched, slapped, kicked, they're going to reach out and grab you, and and I just was like, boy, that's never happened. I've never experienced anything like that. And now that I've done the show, I have had a number of of, of experiences where. I totally can't explain what happened to me. I had an experience in China. We were filming an episode on the on the Great Wall of China and the supposedly supposedly haunted section of the Great Wall. And we used to wear these kind of goofy backpacks on the show that had a bunch of camera equipment strapped to them. Uh-huh. And um and the camera operator would, would sometimes come behind me and make adjustments to the to the backpack. And you'd get kind of jostled around a little bit while they were back there changing a battery or changing a tape. And I remember this this happening up on the the Great Wall, and him being behind me and being kind of rough with me, and me me turning around to sort of say something to him, and he there's like nobody behind me, you know, and there was no <laughs> tree behind me, there was no wall behind me. I just thought he was behind me, and he was like twenty feet back, and uh, and it was like my blood just you know ran cold. It was like I suddenly just every hair on my body stood up because yeah. I just realized that like you know I could not at all explain what just happened. You're putting yourself in that position, you know what I mean? You're almost like you're playing with the Ouija board going, okay, what you got? Come on, paranormal, weird stuff, hit totally. me. You know? but of course, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but of course, the real, the real crazy thing about putting yourself in those positions and going into those places is that, for me at least, it's always that battle between like, you know, I don't know what I'm more scared of. If I'm more scared of a ghost or I'm more scared of like the human mind, mm-hmm. you know, it's like what you know, your, your, your imagination can, can produce terrifying things. And so it's always that question of, did I just see something or, or am I so keyed up and freaked out right now that I thought I saw something? But in the case of what happened in China, it was like, I felt something. Yeah. You knew something was, was beyond just your imagination there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about the werewolf legends that you investigated. There's a number of those around the world. You know, I think what's what's so cool about that story is that you know it's it's such a pop culture creature for us now. It's, it's especially now with Twilight. Monsters. Exactly right, and and it's just so kind of in our pop culture sphere, and yet it has this really interesting background, and it 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 really um, it's a weird myth that pops up in different parts of the world. You, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it pops up in South America in. In Argentina, pops up in in Spain. It pops up in Romania, places like that. But there's a whole bunch of different kind of ways into it. Sometimes it's a curse. Sometimes it's a it's a sort of a, just just a monster that lurks in the shadows. Sometimes it has these odd kind of like um, you know it's uh, like in Argentina there was this myth that if you if you were the seventh son in, right. a, in a family you could turn into a werewolf and things like that. But you know it's one of those things that. Um, I think there's probably not any good evidence of, of, of there being any real kind of world, you know, component to that nowadays, especially. But but it does have these really interesting roots in, in folklore, and, and that makes it a cool story to me. Well, and it's we just discussed this too, uh, Josh, where 
hey, who knows where it started? Maybe somebody got rabies, got bitten by a dog mm-hmm. and got rabies and then just went nuts and went feral and started attacking somebody. And that was passed down from generations. And to be honest with you, if you're losing your mind and you're biting people because you got bit by a dog, guess what? You're a werewolf. That's right. That's totally true. <laughs> you know? And there's... And you know, and we've and we've seen people who have you know we've all seen those photos of people who have that um, you know particular disorder where they grow hair all over their body. Yeah, and, and, wolf you know, boy, like sideshow performers and stuff, right? But you know, a hundred years before that, those people would have been um, you know seen as as real, legitimate right. monsters in some cases. That's that's a great point. Um, yeah. Let's go to something that's a little bit more real. I heard actually from from uh, a lot of different people that the Chernobyl uh, episode that you did. Was was pretty pretty crazy, and even yourself mentioned that it was one of the scariest places you've ever visited. Yeah, I don't know why I thought that was going to be such a fun night. <laughs> um, we, <you laughs> they got know, some we good were, clubs we in hang- Chernobyl, man. Yeah, we <laughs> were we were hanging out in the office thinking about upcoming episodes for the show, and we were trying to, you know, we were we were on this kick of trying to go to like iconic places to do paranormal episodes, and mm-hmm. I forget who even pitched it out, but somebody was like, "What if we went to Chernobyl?" You know, is that? And then we were like, yeah, what if we did? Is that even possible? And we started researching it, and, and it turns out that it is possible, although it is, you know, a really um, kind of dangerous place to explore. You know, for, for, for anyone listening who, who doesn't really know the story, it was the site of, of um, you know, the world's worst uh, nuclear accident. Mm-hmm. There was a, a nuclear reactor at, at uh, Chernobyl in the Ukraine that melted down in, I want to say it was 86, 84. Yeah, in the 80s 86. for sure, yeah. Um, but uh, there was a town built next to the reactor called Pripyat, and the town was um, was more like a city actually. It's a pretty pretty big place, and it was built specifically for the workers uh, who who ran the ran the nuclear reactor. And uh, when the reactor melted down, they they evacuated this town, and nobody was really allowed to return. And so there's this entire ghost city hmm. in the Ukraine, and it's and it's and it's not like oh there's an abandoned building. It's like street after street of abandoned buildings. The whole city is abandoned. Totally abandoned. I mean, I mean, it's like I am legend or, or, or right, the sure. dead. I mean, it's like, there's like, it's like, there's a hospital, there's a school, there's a movie theater, a, a civic center, a carnival, you know, department stores, just, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And it is, it's like, it's terrifying being there, but it's also like, what's behind that door? What's behind, wait, what's in there? You know, you just kind of want to see it, but you're also just super freaked out. How how can you go in there? Like, is is all the radioactivity gone now at this point? It's it's no, it's kind of sketchy. Like, you you if if you're on the main roads because of time and wind and rain, most of the radioactive material's been washed away. So we had on the big, you know, kooky spacesuits. Oh, so you're wearing you, the the outfits. We then. were full, yeah, fully kitted up because we were going to be there for such an extended period of time, and. um and we had these, you know, you, you, you have Geiger counters, but you also have these things called dosimeters, which are kind of like personal Geiger counters that you strap on your arm. And it's kind of like a like a, a turkey thermometer timer in the oven, you know, <laughs> like it, it, it basically gets your accumulated radiation. And when you've had enough, it kind of dings and says, you're done. You know, you're you're yeah. you need to get out. Wow. Really? Um, yeah. It's it sort of a, just it, it measures your your accumulated intake. And so um I remember it was so funny when we when we went there. We uh, we handed them all out. You're supposed to strap them on your arm, and everybody got one. And I look over, and my cameraman was just strapping it to the to his to his belt right in front of his crotch. You know, he was like, <laughs> "This is the area." This, right. This is what I'm worried about. It's here. like when you go for an X-ray and you get that lead apron. You know, you're double wrapping totally. it around your uh, around your ball bag for sure. Totally. <laughs> so you know, it's like, but but the thing about these Ukrainian guys, I mean, what's what's so weird is like there's still this like kind of 
you know, small ghost team of people who run the reactor. I mean, the, the really is, is well, they, they have to monitor to make sure that it doesn't kind of collapse again. So there's like this weird skeleton crew of, of Ukrainian officials there who kind of, you know, their job is to just keep an eye on this thing. And so we went around with them to explore the city. And, you know, they have these big Geiger counters, the old Russian Geiger counters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, all right, what's the number? Like, what's the number that has to pop up on this thing for us to turn around? Like, I like explain to me yeah. what the number is. That's like you never get a clear answer out of them because they're also like blase about everything. Like, oh, it'll be okay. You know, it's okay. They all got no, like, no teeth. No, no, no. They got no what's, teeth what's, and no hair. <laughs> totally right. They're all like, yeah, they're all <laughs> stay as long as you want and, to. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so you know, it was it was like it was maybe the coolest place I think we ever went on, on Destination Truth, but also. I think one of the only places I'd probably never go back to. Well, that hits home just how how dire a situation could get and how lucky that we are. I mean, we always laugh about the nuclear age and the Cold War and all this that and the other thing. And even the other day, you know, talk I saw the interview, you know, the big the movie that held the controversy with right. North Korea and everything. But like if there was some kind of a nuclear meltdown or one bomb set off, we we're done. You know, and then you can see that when you go to a place like Chernobyl. For sure. And, and I'll tell you what, it's scary. You know, that, that reactor, when it, mel- it melted down because a fire started inside the reactor and it, mm-hmm. it breached the, you know, containment system in the reactor. So I think the amount of radioactive material that escaped the reactor was like 2% of the material. Wow. And that was enough to not only make the city next door unlivable, but they basically had to put a pin. You know, if you, if you were to take a map, you could put a pin where the reactor was and you could go out from that pin um, you know, 30 kilometers, so 20-something miles, um, 20 miles, let's, let's call it, and you could draw a circle around that reactor. So you're talking about essentially a 40-mile across Radius, hole yeah. in the middle of Ukraine, in the middle of Europe, that is unlivable for hundreds of years. How, so, how do you get in there? Like, do you just drive there, or do you have to get permits? or You have to get permits and say, I want to go in and check this place out. They actually do like a, like, uh, if you really are into it, you can go and do like a day tour now of the inner, of the, of the city of, of Pripyat. They'll, they'll take people around in like a van and show them for a few hours and then, and then get out of there. I'm envisioning like when you go to a Holiday Inn and there's all those pamphlets at the front desk that tell you where to go. Come to Chernobyl, spend the day. Bring the kids. The hottest city in in the world. Wow. (laughs) Now, no, no, another another place that was amazing was uh, was King Tut's tomb, and you you spent the night. I mean, how do you get into? Do you make a reservation? Like, how does that work? That was the ultimate. Like, I never thought that was going to happen. That's insane. We, we totally nuts. That was like it never should have happened. Even like we um, we wanted to do it. We just thought. I mean, it's it's you know Tut's tomb is is famously supposedly cursed, and all these people who opened his tomb died. And we thought, how cool would it be to go? you know, do a one-on-one session down in the tomb because mm-hmm. he's down in the tomb still. You know, a lot of those royal mummies in Egypt, they're back in Cairo now in the museum. Tut is still in the tomb in like a glass case in the in the actual tomb. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we in, in, in a lot of these countries, you need what's called a fixer. And a fixer is just really a local producer, someone who speaks the language, who knows the customs, who knows the politics, the permits, all that kind of stuff. So, um, in Egypt, we were looking for a local fixer, and somebody said, oh, I got the guy. He, he, he worked for an amazing race. He's done a bunch of stuff. He's the guy. Mm-hmm. So they gave me his number, and I called him, and he's like this young guy. He's like 25 years old, but his dad is, is a fixer, and they're, you know, it's like this family business. And, 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 uh, and he's, he speaks 
perfect English. He's a really, really nice guy. And I, and I go on the phone with him and he says, what do you want to, what do you want to come here and do? And I'm kind of afraid to come out and say it, right? I'm right. kind of afraid to just be like, <laughs> oh, I want to spend the night. It just seems like so ridiculous. So <laughs> yeah. I'm like, um, I'm like, well, you know, we want to, uh, we want to go to the museum and film King Tut's mask, uh, which, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to film. And he mm-hmm. was like, oh, please, the $50. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. Uh, well, we, we also want to go to the pyramids and, and uh, be there before sunrise when you're not allowed to be there. And he's like, oh, it's $200. Come on, I mean, give me a challenge. Was like, it, was, it was like, a, yeah, it, exactly. It was like everything I threw at him was like, you know, it was like, it was like ordering from a Chinese menu. It was like, it just, like, you name it, there's a price next to it. That's it. <laughs> right. And, um, and then he, that, that's exactly what he said, actually, after a couple of minutes. He's like, come on, like, give me, like, like, what do you really want to come do here? This is so easy. This is easy, you know? And I said, well, what I really want to do is I want to go there and spend the night in King Tut's tomb. And, uh, and he sort of paused, you know, the line went quiet for a minute and he said, okay, I need, I need about 30 minutes. Let me give you a call back. And so 30 minutes later, I got back on the phone with him and, uh, I forget what it was. I forget what the price was. It was like, you know, he, he, he had a number in mind. It was not as much as I thought it should have been. I forget it was 10,000, 5,000 something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, I'll let you know. And I called the sci-fi channel and I said, here, here's what this is going to cost. And they will permit it. It will be on paper. It won't be illegal. It'll be the you know we'll we'll, we'll, we'll permit this. Do you want to do it? And uh, and they said uh, sure. Hmm. So we we made this arrangement. Went to Egypt, and this guy was Johnny on the spot with everything. He met us. You know, we just before we filmed there, another show had had gone to Egypt, and they never made it out of the airport because they couldn't get their gear through customs because it's such a shakedown there. Like it's a right. really tough place to film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this guy was, like, at the gate. The gear got out of the airport in 10 minutes, went to the pyramids, filmed the mask, the whole thing. And then the night that we're supposed to go out into the desert uh, where, where the tomb is, we went out there at 5 o'clock at night when, it, when everything closes. All the tourists are, are coming out. We're going in. And uh, he calls me over, and I, I introduces me to a couple guys and guards and handshaking and things like that. And then someone puts a key in my hand and says, okay, go ahead, have fun. And wow. I just thought, no way. Like, no way. So... That's it. You just got to know a guy. Like everything, yeah, I, I know a guy who knows a guy. So you go into King Tut's tomb and you bring a sleeping bag or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, man. I mean, like I said, we can be as scientific as we want or you can be as skeptical as you want. You go inside King Tut's tomb overnight and, and you know the legends that if you go in here, you're probably going to die or cursed for life. I mean, you must have been a little bit uh, skittish that night, to say the least. You know, I... I was, but it was kind of like I was so excited that, <laughs> that, that it had worked and that it had happened that as freaky as it was, and it was actually really strange there, I, I, the whole time, though, I just felt like I was on a high. You know, I was just right. so excited to, 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 to be there. I was just like a kid in a candy store. But it's really funny. When we, were, when we were outside the tomb setting up all the equipment and the cameras and stuff, it was like a perfectly clear night. And this huge sandstorm kicked up and wow. was like trash, trashing our equipment and Dude. tarps and all this stuff. And it was just like, right, of course, of course. Of, cr- of course. Right it's the yeah, curse, it's the warning, you know? That's right. Yeah. I, I heard that your mummy was really happy that you did that. Oh, Ho, hello, hello. Uh, what's, what's the most out there claim that you've investigated that you left thinking going like this, this could be real. Was there ever one or two or 10? I think, um, I think for me that the, the ones that I most end up thinking are real are not necessarily the most out there ones. A lot of them are like, 
these mystery creatures, mystery primates in certain places. Mm-hmm. Like we, there was a story in, in Indonesia about this kind of, it's like a Bigfoot, except it was sort of smaller. It was like this kind of, you know, kind of halfway between, between like an orangutan and like a Bigfoot. And, and, um, and I remember leaving thinking, yeah, that thing's probably there. Like there's probably, you know, there's probably right. an uncatalogued primate species living in that jungle because some of these places like, I don't know, like, I, I, I'm kind of a skeptic on the U.S. Bigfoot thing, only because, like, I know there's a ton of wilderness out there, mm-hmm. but it just feels like we maybe should have come across something by now, you know? Right. But, it, but in some of these places, like in this place in Indonesia, these jungles were so impenetrable. And we met with these conservationists that were working there. One of them was an elephant conservationist, and they had elephants in these jungles. She'd been there for 10 years. She'd never seen an elephant. Hmm. Wow. And they had... They, and they, and they have droppings and they have bones and they have remains, but she'd never seen one. She never, you know, they're, they're just so reclusive and the jungle is so hard to investigate. So I left there thinking, yeah, maybe this, I mean, Christ, if they can't find an elephant in there. And know? they can't find an elephant and they know that it exists, right? Like you said. Totally. So, and, and you know, there's a lot of different, I know there's the, the Amazon river dolphin, which should not be there, you know, an actual flesh colored dolphin that lives in, in the jungle or sorry, in, in the, in the, in the river there. There's also like a, a new species of tapirs. You know what those are? Like those mm-hmm. yeah, weird yeah, rhinoceros yeah, sure. things. So they're finding a lot of new species all the time. So, so why not? Right. Exactly. And, that, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of what, what I think Expedition Unknown is about and what, and what Destination Truth was about is that whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a believer, the really cool thing about it, I think, is that it's, it's a real adventure, you know. And, and I, I think one of the things that's sometimes kind of a bummer is that it feels like we live in a time where everything feels kind of mapped and, you know, uh, done and explored. And, mm-hmm. and it feels to a lot of people, I think, like there's not a lot of mystery out there still. And yet, there really is. There's just so much of the world that hasn't really been cataloged and explored. And I think that what we're trying to do is shine a light on that to tell people, you know, hey, there's still cool stories out here. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of different things that we still don't know about. Uh, final two Ooh. questions. What's your, is there a favorite episode of Destination Truth that stands out for you? And there's, is there a favorite episode of Expedition Unknown that stands out for you? I think for me, in terms of Destination Truth, my, my favorite episode to film, which might not be my favorite you know, one on one to, to, to watch. But I think my favorite one to, to film was our trip to Antarctica. You know, we went down to the, the bottom of the world and it was a place <laughs> that I just wasn't sure that I was ever going to get to go to and, and uh, such a hard place to reach. And we, we went down there and, and, you know, so hard to film down there. It was one of those things that just was personally really satisfying that we managed to, to pull it off, you know. What were you looking um, for when you went down there? We were, we were doing a, a, a paranormal thing. We were like, all right, let's do the world's most remote ghost hunt, you know? Hmm. And uh, there are all these abandoned whaling stations and research stations down there, these buildings that are like, you know, it's like something out of like the thing, you know, these mm-hmm. totally forgotten facilities down there. And so we, and, and a lot of them have these cool ghost stories attached to them. So we went and investigated those and took this way too tiny sailboat down there from the bottom <laughs> of South America. And, that's just really cool. It was just really hard to film. It's really. interesting. So, uh, I just had uh, Robert Trujillo from Metallic on, and they played a show in Antarctica just to be the only band that's ever played on all seven continents. And he said that the penguins would just come up to them because they're not afraid of men. They haven't been taught to be afraid of man. He said totally. the wildlife would act differently. Did you notice that too? I totally noticed that. It was like you, you, they just are like, it's like, why aren't they like waddling away? They just, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, come and hang wild. out. Totally. Uh, and, and it made it a lot easier for me to club and, and kill them. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, sure. You're evil. Um, Get that on film. <laughs> 
but but I think I think for me the most uh, the, I think uh, one of the real favorite episodes was this uh, purportedly haunted forest in in Romania, and it's a place that we visited a couple times on the show. And uh, I had a camera operator, and the, the first time we went there, who you know, this is a guy who's like, you know, he's out there to film the show. He's not a paranormal guy. He's he's not a, a you know, he's not in it for the for the ghost stories. And right. he's, he's out there, there to do a job. He had this, yeah, he's there to do a job. And he had this insane experience where he effectively got like blown off of his feet. You know, he was sitting and, and he got kind of blown backwards off his feet. And I, I watched it happen on on camera. We were filming him when it happened. And it, and and I ran over there afterwards and we sort of you know helped him. He was sort of shaken up and he was like. Beyond terrifying. Wow. I mean, it was like something had just happened to him. Something physical had just happened to him. And that was, to me, though it, though it didn't happen to me, it happened to, to my camera operator. It was one of the craziest things I ever saw making that show because it was just so visceral and freaky. You and, know? Unex- and unexplainable. Think, totally. Yeah. I mean, just like wild. Mm. And I think for, for uh, Expedition Unknown, you know, um, our, our our trip for Amelia Earhart was really cool, but I actually think that the, that the second episode uh, in uh, Cambodia is, is for me one of the one of the highlights of the show, just because to be able to document a, a, a city that really nobody's seen before, and and it's a really difficult place. The the, the jungles around the city are covered in landmines, so we had to go through wow. a, a landmine jungle, and we, we we went out there with these landmine experts and. And, and worked with these guys as they as they clear landmines. I mean, you think I mean anyone now who says they have a tough job, mm-hmm. believe me, nothing's tougher than being a landmine clearer in, in Cambodia. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. That is the world's most stressful job for sure. And so for me, that 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 episode I think is uh, is is just such a great adventure, and it's tense and it's exciting, and it has this great payoff of seeing this this cool place. And so. I'm really, I'm really proud of it. I think, I think it's good stuff. Well, all this stuff is good stuff. The show is called Expedition Unknown, and we have the real life Josh Gates. I am the real life short round. Doctor Gates, you cheat. Doctor Gates, you cheat. <laughs> uh, amazing talking to you, man. And uh, I'm really looking forward to checking out Expedition Unknown. I actually got uh, all the DVDs for Destination Truth as well. So I've now found some new favorite shows, and it's been great to have you on, man. I really appreciate you sharing these uh, amazing tales. Hey man, it's been it's been great uh, being here as well. Thank you for having me. And uh, one of these days, we'll we'll have to team up forces and go on an adventure together. We'll find some we'll find some adventure. If nothing else, we'll grab a bottle of vodka and we'll find some stuff on our own. Hey, we could do that. That's an easy adventure. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Thanks, the longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, thanks to Expedition Unknown's Josh Gates, the modern-day Indiana Jones. You can see new episodes every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central on the Travel Channel. They're doing some crazy investigations and explorations. This Thursday, Josh and his team investigate the fall of the Mayan Empire. They unearth ancient Mayan sacrificial altars and human skulls in the caverns underneath the jungles of Mexico. Yeah, that's Expedition. 
expedition unknown on the Travel Channel. You'll be hooked, I promise. And don't forget, if you live in L.A., go check out The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. That's at the Arclight Theater on Sunset Boulevard in L.A. on Sunday, March 8th at 8 p.m. Still a few tickets left. It's an incredible story about how Diamond Dallas Page and DDP Yoga literally saved Jake's life. We talked about it when Jake and DDP were on Talk is Jericho, and now you can get to see it. If you live in L.A., get your tickets to see the documentary at the Arclight on Sunset, Sunday, March 8th at 8 p.m. Don't forget, if you want to get some Talk is Jericho t-shirts, go to ProWrestlingTees.com, T-E-E-S. You can get the Master of Podcasts, the Pot of Thunder, get the Armbar shirt or Jericho Personal Security if you want to do some retro Jericho. And if you live in Ireland, we will see you tonight as the Cinderblock Party World Tour starts in Belfast. It's finally here. We're coming to your city near you in a couple weeks. 5th in Cork, 6th in Dublin, Ireland. Then we jet on over to England, Nottingham, Wolverhampton, Manchester, Glasgow, London, Bristol, Exeter, Southampton, Brighton on March 15th. We get one day off, then we head to Paris, Pretown, Switzerland, Munich, Germany, Mannheim, Germany, Bochum, Germany on March 21st. You need to go to FozzyRock.com. Check out all ticket information. There are tickets left to some of the shows. Some of them are close to selling out, so if you're thinking about it, if you're sitting on the fence, get Get your ass over there, man. Come on. Go rock it with us on the VIP side as well. Come hang out with us. Meet with us. It'll be an experience you'll never, ever forget for the rest of your life. One last thank you to all you guys for supporting the great sponsors on Talk is Jericho. Wouldn't be able to do this for free twice a week without my fruit sponsors, and that includes Amazon. You go to podcastone.com, click on the Keep Our Podcast free banner at the top of the page, eh? then click on Talk is Jericho. You see all my Amazon links, and every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show with no extra fees or hidden charges. Getting that shopping done. Help me out in the process. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for, for, for loving me, man. I love to love you, baby. And I want to thank you for joining me. That's it. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. We will see you on Friday with Samoa Joe. He's in the news right now. He just left TNA. He's back in Ring of Honor. He's the hot topic guy. So where else is he going to be? He's going to be here to talk to me on Talk is Jericho with all of you. Samoa Joe coming up on Friday. We'll see you then. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Oh.